0: In 1984, Jerry White went to Israel for his junior year study abroad program at Hebrew University. On his spring break that April, White and his two American roommates went out hiking in the Golan Heights in Northern Israel, tracing the footsteps of biblical prophets. They got off the beaten path to set up camp. One morning, White walked ahead of his friends and stepped on a landmine. He was just 20 years old. Hello everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. The tragedy of losing his right leg to a landmine transformed White into a student of resilience and survivorship and an advocate for landmine victims. He became a charismatic activist who worked closely with Princess Diana, Queen Noor, Paul McCartney and others to fight for a global ban on anti-personnel mines. White's high impact campaigns resulted in three major international treaties. And in 1997, he shared the Nobel Peace Prize awarded to the international campaign to ban landmines. But over time, White began to question his landmine survivor hero narrative and dreamed of retiring his landmine cape, as he likes to call it. His soul searching on how that accident changed his relationship with nature and why that landmine came to be on that Israeli hill in the first place has resulted in a prolific body of thinking, speaking and writing. White has a new book out this November called *Religiouside*, confronting the roots of anti-religious violence. The book is now available for pre-order on Amazon. I'm delighted to have Jerry White here today to share his experience of what happens when you dare to question your own narrative and when you lose touch with the earth. Jerry, welcome to *When It Mattered*.
1: Thank you, Chitra.
0: You know people frequently walk off the beaten path when hiking but for you it wasn't just any hill that you stepped on that day that had the landmine was it
1: no i mean i think back to 1984 and just being in nature and blissful with my two best friends um like on a sunny day and we'd come from like swimming under a waterfall in the banyas in northern israel and couldn't have been like happier on like you know a spring day um and then as we are walking through the woods the the funny thing is, I remember this, there was a fork in the, not the road, but in the woods, and there were two paths. And one path was well-trodden, and I saw tourists and others like heading in that direction. And then the other was sort of overgrown. So it's here that I blame Robert Frost, of course, for the mistake that we turn left to go down the path less trodden, that was sort of worn and not quite clear, and to get away from where everyone else was walking and that was a fateful fork um, that led to the minefield that we entered while it was unmarked unfenced and free and open from where we walked
0: and it was a historic minefield
1: it turns out i didn't know this at the time of course but in the 1967 war um, this area called teleziziat in the golan was known it was a syrian stronghold and a base Um, It had overlooking, like, strategic value to sort of see and have panoramic views of the Golan, and many, many lives were lost in the battle over this particular tell. All I thought when I saw the ridge in the distance was that would be a perfect place to camp out and spend the night under the stars.
0: And what happened next?
1: Well, we spent the night and we got up there and started to like, you know, get ready to sleep. And we had a bonfire and it was perfect. The views were amazing. The sunset, incredible. Again, great mood, cooking our own or warming some food over the fire. We read some diary entries from the Six Day War and we thought, wow, like, look, look, I think this is like a bunker over here. So we noticed some leftover military, I don't know what you'd call it, archaeology. Um, There's a bunker and you thought, oh, well, maybe this was, you know, important in the six day war. Never did I ever read or think about the word landmine or why, you know, here we were like so many years later, maybe 19 years later afterwards that there were minefields all around us, that we were surrounded by military litter in this beautiful spot of nature. So we read those, spent the night, had a good night's sleep. And, uh, it was really in the morning in, the, in a beautiful sunny day on April 12th, 1984, that I just was like, you know what, I'm gonna hike out in front of my friends. They're taking some time today and I just head off. It was our last day of hiking. We're heading down the hillside, um, just excited for the, you know, the last day of vacation and camping. And so I move out ahead, I'm walking. I think I'm, I'm even humming or singing like my favorite hymn. You know, there's a song that I love just called It Is Well With My Soul. It "It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. I have a bad voice, but so I hummed it instead of singing it. And then there was an explosion like deafening and I was thrown in the air and I just landed on my face and had no idea what just happened. Um, I felt like sort of deafening in my ears The time I didn't feel pain per se. I just was, you know, trying to maybe get up. And there was silence. And I thought, like, was that an attack? Was that a rocket? Or someone is like terrorists are attacking us? And someone just maybe launched a Katusha rocket from Lebanon and it landed on this site. Like I had no idea out of the blue sky, literally, it felt like something had attacked. Um, but it was dead quiet and Then as the dust settles, my two friends started to yell at me not to move. So it obviously had dawned on them before it dawned on me that we were in a minefield. We weren't under terrorist attack, that the threat, the terrorists were buried underground all around us.
0: And and you probably had no idea too, in that shocking moment, right? That that you were the one affected and your friends must have been beside themselves in a foreign country, they knew it was a life-threatening emergency, medical emergency, even though you didn't quite know yet.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, one of my friends, um, he ripped off his jacket and then T-shirt and uh, that was Fritz and he, they got to me, I didn't see how and they flipped me over and so one friend was from Wisconsin, um, the other was from Texas, David, and David was pre-med. So thankfully, he knew how to tie a proper tourniquet with Fritz's you know, sweaty white t-shirt. Um, so when they flipped me over, then I saw that my right foot was just MIA. Like I was like, well, where's my foot? Like, where's my foot? I see like blood just pouring out of the remainder of my leg, where's my foot? Like, where's my foot? Like, literally chanting, where's my foot? Where's my foot? And then I look over on the my second leg. It's like a cartoon. I remember it's like your clothes are all sh- um, shredded, and it's sort of smoky and smudged. But then I saw bone sticking out of my left leg. I had a foot, but my knee was ripped open and bones were sticking out. And I thought, that's strange. I thought my shin bone would be bigger than that. Like if that leg's broken, it's not dangling. So you have in trauma, as you may understand that you have surreal moments that sear in your brain. And even as I'm telling you the story, I think my eyes roll back in my head, I go back to this place, and I'm describing what I'm seeing at the time, as if it were yesterday. And I'm like, No, I, and I thought to myself, those are little bones, why are they little bones? And later on, I learned that it was because the foot that had been exploded, that stepped on the landmine had shattered and splinters from that leg had become projectiles, like bones that shot up like arrows into my body. And so that's why it seems strange to have so many little bones sticking out of my calf and my knee, so I remember that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, it's uh it's it's amazing that you know the level of detail right they say the body just never forgives and forgets when it loses a, a, a you know a part and 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 you were in in that incredible moment of shock and and pain and 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 how did they get you to the hospital and 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 what happened in in the ensuing days and weeks well
1: they dawned us they had to, like get out like we were like tried to yell for help but it was like we're in the middle of nowhere there's no like asphalt or road nearby we'll have to hike out and so they picked me up and you know at the time I'm like a six three six foot three inch guy you know 200 pounds and they have to carry me down like a hillside that's heavily mined and they had the wherewithal or the prescience to Go down the hardest, steepest, rockiest part of the hillside, as opposed to a pathway or wherever there was green, thinking, well, that's where the landmines would be, still planted. Again, left over from the 1967 war when I guess I was four years old. And these landmines are still alive um, in 1984. So they pick me up. I put my arms around both their necks and shoulders. We see my legs in front of us dangling missing foot, shredded, but with a tourniquet. And yeah, my legs were the first to hit any briar patch, my legs were the first to hit the ground when they dropped me. Um, So we would skid and fall. And it was so excruciating people, I wish I had passed out. But the thing about landmines is they're designed to maim. Like another word I've never used until that time. What does it mean to maim, like to rip off a body part, just enough explosive powder to rip off a body part so that you stay awake and you are terrorized as you look at your body and then you're alive. So soldiers you know, in war, we're just civilians in war, then the soldiers have to go and try to save their buddy missing a leg. They have to go through a minefield to save someone. So there's a, a weapon of terror that's meant it does its job it's terrifying um, so yeah i was awake for all of this you know yes there's some level of shock and so they dropped me 3 times on the way down this hillside by the third time i was just like i can't nope like just leave me here like save yourselves and of course my two friends already having survivor guilt and not you know horrified that they didn't step on a landmine and i did and watching their buddy in so much pain, um, I said, someone has to go get help. I just can't like move. You can't carry me for miles. And so as we got to the edge of the minefield and I'm lying there like in the you know, bushes in the field, um, we realized we're on the wrong side of coiled barbed wire. We're actually trapped inside the minefield. From where we're trying to exit, there is a sign and there is coiled barbed wire to prevent anyone from coming into the minefield, but we're on the wrong side.
0: So what happened next?
1: Someone has to get out. So one of the friends Fritz from Wisconsin, he uh, I don't know how he did it. You'll have to ask him. Like he just flung himself and climbed over, you know, shredding his skin on barbed wire to get to the other side and began, and David stayed by my side. And so they could find us again in case I passed out. And Fritz just started to run down like a dirt road nearby through the fields of a kibbutz, a farm. And in the distance he saw some type of wagon heading up his way. And he starts waving his hand and screaming and hear a kibbutznik an Israeli um, had heard an explosion and went to investigate. And he knew that every now and then there's like a cow or some, you know, something happens or a mine goes off or there's an explosion. He went to check it out, but not expecting to find three Americans, you know, traumatized. So he came in with Fritz, they drove quickly back to the spot. Um, He had cutters, he cut through the barbed wire. And they wouldn't advise you to do this or none of your listeners. This is bad, you know, landmine protocol. But he said, um, Fritz, go back in to your friend. You walk first, and I'll walk in your footsteps. So there, Fritz was trying to retrace his steps so he wouldn't step on another or trigger another minefield explosion. Um, But they got to me, got me, like, carried me out, put me in a stretcher, got in the back of a wagon, and began the, you know, I think, hour plus drive to the nearest hospital.
0: And you were in hospitals and rehab for six months, and uh, I, what were those months like? And where they weren't able to save the leg, right? What was the ultimate uh, injury that?
1: Yeah, so at first they thought it was like mostly of the foot, they saved most of the leg. Um, so yeah, I did spend about five and a half months in hospitals, first in Safat in a uh, hospital in the north, and then was transferred to Tel-Shamer Hospital in Tel Aviv where they had some of the best care for soldiers, many of whom were being blown up by landmines in Lebanon at the time. This is the 1980s during the civil war and the engagement and um, conflict there. So I ha- I knew that I needed to go to a nice hospital that was better than the, the rural one I was in. Um, and I chose that one after talking to a couple of Israelis who said, that's the best, you know, it's called Sheba Medical Center, Shikum Aleph for rehabilitation. So after a couple of weeks of stabilization in the north and my mother coming over on Easter day, um, horrified to like see one of her six children in such pain, she stayed a month, um, the first month, probably the most difficult one. And yeah, watched my transfer and watched me later on. I developed gangrene, had to have another amputation during the months. Another time I fell, so I probably had about six operations over time, but I was in a room with um, three other guys who were Israeli soldiers who were missing arms and legs or eyes. Um, So there wasn't a lot of privacy, I'd say, but it was strangely comforting to be with people who shared your pain. Um, So I knew at the time that if I like just went home to Boston My father was president of a hospital at the time, New England Baptist Hospital. You know, the best care in the world must be in Boston. Um, (laughs) So fly me home, private plane, private room, private best doctors. And I actually was the one who said, no, I'm staying here until I learn to walk again. Like you can come and fly and see me here and see the context. None of my family members were an Irish Catholic family, not Jewish, no one had ever thought of going to Israel but me. But yeah i forced them all to come on over and check it out um or at least the hospitals
0: and and how how did you i mean you were you had you were just out there enjoying nature the day that day as you said you know and you were doing like all the right things you know like you were an irish catholic student who wanted to study another religion and you, you were like you know learning everything you could and then you you know your your walk just turns into a tragedy I mean did you feel wronged and how did you feel about that being out in nature and and having this this encounter
1: I think it's like when you go from your like happiest moment to your least happy in a second um it was unnatural and so I think back of like how innocent I was let's say when you're a kid right like going from like I grew up in the South Shore of Massachusetts, a small town on the ocean. And so, let's say your first 10 years of life or mine were like surrounded by beauty, like on the beach, like marshes, wooded areas. So, just so much. Um, you felt just aligned with nature and innocent, whether you're in the woods, in a marsh, or like on the shoreline looking at like barnacles and crabs and, you know, kelp seaweed. And that was all magical. And then I remember even when I was 10 years old, going to Ireland and with the whole family for a month and just so many colors of green and I milked my first cow and I got the first like egg from the hen house and rode horses, even played tennis on a grass or lawn tennis court near a farm, again, magical. So, you know, the formative years were natural from birth to Ireland anyway. And then I started to think, what happened to my relationship with nature? Like, how did that evolve from something so beautiful and friendly and natural to um, estrangement? And for me, if you think about ages 10 to 20, you sort of like it seems a little less natural. You know, let's say you're growing up, you're a teenager, or suddenly you're putting on sunblock or insect repellent. Or, you know, you go to the beach with your friends, as teenagers, and you're drinking beer on like, you know, chairs, or instead of just being on rocks and sand, you're suddenly in like motorboats or water skiing or having the thrill of sport. So you begin to inject like mechanicals and props into a natural environment. So that's what we did. And it was like, I never thought about it then, but I'm like, huh, um, even like the idea of moving from a lawn or grass tennis to, you know, hard court you know, concrete and pavement. So I think things start to become less natural even in the suburbs. Um, I'm clearly not from an indigenous family, you know, Irish immigrant family. And then, you know, 20 is when I step out of landmine. So I'm trying to enjoy nature. I'm loving it. I'm camping with my friends. We don't even have tents. We're just sleeping under the stars. And suddenly nature turns into my enemy or seems to like I walk innocently take one false step. And it's like the Earth like Mother Earth attacked me and bit off my leg. And I stopped trusting nature from that second.
0: Did you did you ever go hiking again?
1: Funny thing is, I didn't think about it like I after I Left Israel after six months, I was walking with prosthesis. I go back to Brown university to resume my studies in Rhode Island. And I had a weird relationship with nature. I just, I didn't trust it. So this sounds strange. I think it's part of PTSD or trauma that I would go to like the quad or the main lawn or, you know, courtyard, you know, at Brown university, you know, with Ivy league bricks and Ivy everywhere. And I would not walk on the grass. I just, something said like, stay to the pavement. Don't, I wouldn't even walk on the grass. I knew in my mind factually that there was not a minefield in the center of campus or like here in the United States. However, last time I trusted nature and walked innocently without thinking about it, I got blown up. So I wouldn't even walk through the parks or on grass for a couple of years. Um, I knew that was something wrong. Um, I didn't get help for it. It like seemed to fade. And then I, it turns out I never went camping again for 20 years. I never resumed my relationship with nature, you know, until it turns out a friend who was a roommate in Jerusalem wanted to have a reunion and he invited Fritz, David, and myself to go camping in the boundary waters, um, in Minnesota
0: and what was that like
1: it was strange like i i of course was so excited to see like some of my best buddies like what you know and take a vacation with them and i hadn't seen them in a while and these two guys like two of them saved my life they're the reason like i'm alive got married had kids all that good stuff and when i got to the airport i was having trepidation i didn't know what it was and i saw them and everyone seems sort of short, like, you know, just sort of terse or tense. And granted, you're getting your luggage, you're getting ready to head out. And it dawned on me and I asked my two friends, hey, have either of you ever gone camping since 1984, since our last camping trip together? And no one had thought about it and none of us had gone back into nature.
0: That's incredible.
1: Just in the, without even questioning it, just it had just been something one does not do. I mean, yes, you might be on beach trips. Yes, you've been on ocean. Yes, you might have taken your kids to the park, um, but not the way one does when one is like, you know, naked and aligned with nature. Um, so then we realized, yikes, we're um, this is the next time we're doing it. I, I hope something bad doesn't happen this week. And did it? Started off pretty well. I mean, the weather was awful. It rained and poured, but luckily we had this guide, our friend Ray Hansen, who does this every year, multiple times, knew every trekking and all the best places to fish. And he would flay the fish and get ready. And so we, but in the rain, I was a little nervous when we'd put the kerosene lamp inside the tent because it was pouring. And I thought, I bet it spills onto me and like I'm a burn victim. I, don't, I had the thought, banished it but I was, I was sort of afraid. And then he was one of the nights, like maybe three days in, he was making some fish. We're all eating, cracking jokes around the campfire. And suddenly I begin to choke. Like I'm like a fish bone is like stuck in my throat.
0: Oh God, what happened?
1: So I like, I was so embarrassed because, you know, you're coughing and you shouldn't do this. You should like give that universal sign around your neck, like you're choking. But I just was like, you know, let me go clear my throat. So I removed myself from the my campfire and started to walk down towards the river, just coughing and then like did Heimlich on myself, like, like punched myself in the gut and like coughed up a bone. And then I made a joke about it coming back, like guys, that was not pleasant but I think we broke the curse.
0: <laughs> Did you feel it for sure? You felt I mean, it? For
1: some reason I was like, that was it. Like we're, no, nothing's gonna happen. We're gonna be okay. And then we, yeah, we, there was a lot of joy even in the bad weather of just being back in nature with like canoes and paddles and fishing rods and like eating what you catch that day. That's just like beautiful. So yeah, it took a long time to circle back.
0: All those years at that- Two decades, I guess, that you were away from nature. You actually had an incredibly productive and award-winning life. Uh, it was a, an an incredibly accomplished life of doing good for others. Uh, you, uh, you, 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 um, you know, you can describe some of your biggest accomplishments uh, if you like, uh, or I can list them. But they are quite a few. What what would you say you're most proud of?
1: I never said at the time. Of course, it's, it sounds like a dad, right? Like that I married a goddess and have four amazing adult children. So if I think of the accomplishment of family, um, I don't want to sound so like, you know, cliche about that because I don't think I boasted about it while it was happening. I didn't want to jinx it, but I'm super proud of um, my adult children and my beautiful wife um, and whatever small part I've contributed to that circle. So that's uh That's goes maybe without saying, but I had to say it. <laughs> but the others were like, no, I'm I'm not like a, you, you like, I mean, awards make your mom so proud and your dad so proud and the family proud and you do these things. But I look back and think that this culture of heropreneurship, like giving people awards, whether human rights awards, humanitarian awards, even when we went to Oslo to pick up, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, like the, the award of all awards, um, and you're in your tux and you're meeting the royal family, the king and the queen, and um, you know, it's amazing. And but we had just negotiated the treaty to ban landmines. We hadn't gotten all the stockpiles destroyed. We hadn't removed or made countries mine free. Hundreds of thousands of survivors were going without legs or jobs or access to any care. So it felt a little premature to be like sipping champagne and celebrating everything. It was it was a remarkable thing to, you know, have a to build an organization with my colleagues of 1200 organizations in over 120 countries standing for a ban against landmines, negotiating a treaty in record time with like-minded allies and governments like Canada and the foreign minister Lloyd Axworthy there. Um, so it was, there's reason to celebrate, but I think the Nobel committee likes to bank on you know maybe prematurely on new models of peace and maybe sometimes award things with hope um but then you know the good news is over the next 10 years we destroyed tens of millions of landmines and countries became landmine free with international assistance and over 100 and like 69 or 70 countries have joined the ban on the production use export of anti-personnel mines so it's Like civil society, this was a signal in 1997 that civil society working together became a superpower that could stand up to the likes of the Soviet Union, the United States, um, you know, and big powers and the people power won.
0: Earlier on, you described yourself as a a heropreneur and then I've heard you use the word transpreneur in talking about, all of this work that you did with your colleagues to get these laws passed and these major three major international treaties the landmine ban treaty the u.n convention on the rights of persons with disabilities the cluster munitions ban what does it mean to be a transpreneur and how did you manage to pull this off to get this kind of consensus what fueled you in terms of the energy that it takes to pull these things off
1: <laughs> that's a good question and i laugh because i don't know except that i say there's divine energy on your side when you're standing up for something that is right and good, a ban on weapon, weapons that like maim children and refugees or in war where 80 to 90% of victims are civilians, not the soldiers. So, or a billion people around the world with disabilities who are invisible to the human rights network and, and regime with no treaty to protect them living in poverty So when you pick an issue where clearly like it's social injustice is raging and rightness is on your side, I think spirit is at your back um, and the calling is clear and the direction has a moral compass. So it wins in the end. Like that's my, I'm a romantic, like that, it wins. And and also you share in leadership. It isn't Jerry White. It's like um, it's like, hey, you got a shovel, you got a dog, you got a you know a pickaxe, like let's build. Like everything to this day and age, I think it's about co-leadership, sharing leadership, coalition building with strange bedfellows that are unusual, um, do it, don't do the obvious. And that our work begins at no, people will say it's never, we'll never have peace or you, you can't possibly, or like landmines will never be banned, go home, says NATO, says the Pentagon says most everyone, and you learn that our work begins at no, when injustice is involved, and so that gives me confidence um, that you can do it again and again, because, you know, not just the arc of justice, it can take a long time, like, no, you can speedily change policies and affect millions of lives in record time, so that once you do it a couple times, it's like playing a sport called, like, social change-making or transformational leadership, you sort of get addicted to uh, playing that sport. Like what other things can we try and change around here? So that's why I love like Ashoka. I'm an Ashoka fellow. I'm proud of that because it's like being a social entrepreneur. They name about 3,000 people around the world who are like in this category of, you know, not, you know, a transpreneur for me is someone who's a social entrepreneur. So you work in nonprofits like I did.org. And that's like, you know, entrepreneurship, like you're working on coalitions like we did with the International Campaign to Ban Landlines, but also the dot coms, they're entrepreneurs, right? The standard definition of the Steve Jobs or people start things. And I've worked on, you know, I have an MBA from Michigan. I started a tech company and have been, you know, worked in partnership with companies as well. So that's, you know, classic entrepreneurship. And then you got to work with research and, and, and journalists, you know, people who are truth telling, to the extent possible about what is happening. Like how many landmines are there? What's the problem here? Um, you have to have universities and academia there. So that's the .edu. We could call that int- you know, intrapreneurship, also like spiritual people who may pray. And then there's, I would call it intrapreneurship, which is when you have really large institutions like governments. Like when I worked at the State Department for President Obama and Under Secretary Clinton, that's a huge institution that you are doing innovative things from within. So that's called intrapreneurship. So when I say transpreneurship, I really feel that real lasting, systemic, you know, transformational change takes place when you're mindful of all of those elements and you're pulling them to move in the same direction for a common good, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. And among other things, uh, you also... uh, uh, wrote speeches for, traveled with, uh, you know, global advocate celebrities like Paul McCartney and Queen Noor and Princess Diana on on global anti-landmine campaigns. What was that experience like to go from where you were to like being on this world stage? And I think you also es- escorted uh, Princess Diana on her last humanitarian mission to Bosnia and Herzegovina, which I think it was a trip you arranged. I mean, how did you make that happen and what was what were those experiences like?
1: Wow, I mean, you're really bringing me back. but the um I do love, I do believe when one is making change, one has to have a strategic narrative shift. And that requires, like no one knows Jerry White. I'm just Forrest Gump. Like behind the scenes, you may be showing up at Kensington Palace or you know, at you know the UN or with the Secretary General. So you are this anonymous figure that's trying to produce change. And that's only done through casting other people in the opera or the play. And in the case of the Princess of Wales, like that's an iconic, you know, beautiful woman, the most photographed celebrated famous woman in the world. But if she didn't have an authentic gift of compassion, it would not work. So the authenticity has to be there. That here was a, a gift to the landmine campaign, wanting to surround herself with landmine survivors, the victims so that she could spotlight the problem that it was a humanitarian problem a human story so because of that she single-handedly turned like what was considered a military or security issue into a human and humanitarian one how do we make sure that civilians and children and farmers and women and even dumb American tourists like me are not injured by the military's litter so she was remarkable like I you know I think that's not in the, you know that last year of her life i got to know her pretty well and had that honor of watching someone with a colossal cosmic gift in action bringing light and healing to dark places i just like stand back and was in awe in
0: 2008 you wrote a book on resilience called i will not be broken five steps to overcoming a life crisis and you you interviewed thousands of trauma victims for the book uh what were some of the commonalities you found and what would you say needs to happen to take someone from victimhood to survivorship to activism and leadership and and all of the of those stages that you went through
1: Hmm. so i'll give you the short fast version and you can read i mean originally the book was called i will not be broken which i now see is rather arrogant um but the paperback is you know more accessible just called like you know getting up when life knocks you down, you know, five steps to overcoming life crises. So I didn't want to be so formulaic because the wisdom of survivorship is so deep. And I have such respect for my fellow sufferers around the world. But it was the survivors who taught me, you know, about survivorship. So that's not just surviving a victim experience where you could stay in victimhood and get addicted to the grievance of it all. Um, It was, Live as I would define it, living positively and dynamically in the face of disaster, disability, death, destruction, devastation, disease, all those awful D words may alliterate. Um, but to move from victim to survivor to thriver was the the challenge. I thought this is so strange. When I go everywhere I go in the world, from Ethiopia to you know Jordan to Bosnia to Cambodia. Um, you know, to Angola or El Salvador, like we were seeing a commonality among some super survivors. You're like, they, they're missing their arms and legs. Their house was like burnt down. Their sister and mother are dead. Um, how, how on earth could they be smiling? How? Like they didn't get the memo that their victimized life sucks is awful. You can't fathom the level of polytrauma. That has been inflicted, like at the level of the, uh, you know, the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible. Um and it was, I started like, what why do some people stay victim and others move through to like show light and smiles? And it turns out there we we documented and did research on like five stages or five steps, which I you know, if you want, I can go over them quickly, but I don't want to like encumber <laughs> the uh the conversation. You,
0: can, you could sum it up.
1: Okay, great. So it's just uh, number one, face facts. That's like breakthrough denial. My leg is not growing back and that's sad. Emotions are facts too. So there's things that happen to us, fact, how we feel about them and how others react to them. Those are facts. So there's, you just can't get beyond the, that worst step of like, this sucks and I'm super sad. <laughs> Uh, the other is choose life step number two which means like despite this horrible situation that you choose hope or that your life won't be defined by this awful dark ring in the trunk of your tree like this bad year um that or this bad date or moment of your life that um you have many other rings to grow the third step is reach out which means No one survives alone, Like my two friends carried me out of that minefield and I had nurses. I mean, I joke, if you're going to step on a landmine, do it in Israel because there's the best trauma care in the world there. Like this was sadly normal and the care was uh, remarkable. And um, yeah, so we need each other at all different levels from family to friends. So even if it's not your immediate family or you have trauma, there are others who can come along, but you cannot survive alone just like you can't succeed alone. The fourth step is uh, get moving, you know, basically like movement in life is so important. So the first time I was in a wheelchair, I remember vividly this nurse looking down at me um, and I was in a lot of pain, had lost a lot of weight. I finally get out of the, you know, off the IV and out of the hospital bed. And I sat there and I wanted to go to lunch like at the cafeteria or whatever, wherever they fed you the hard boiled eggs. So she looked down at me and laughed and said, well, Jerry, if you want to move, then push. And it was sort of like Israeli tough love, but I realized that movement is important. No one will do your rehab for you. It's yours to do your sit-ups and push-ups you know, in real life or metaphorically, but movement, physical movement, and getting out of bed and into the shower or shoes on, whatever it might be for you, moving from A to B to C is part of recovery and resilience. And something one does. Um, and lastly, the fifth step is give back. Um, basically, we noticed from the research, but also those survivors who were smiling at some level, they were givers. In small or big ways, they had learned to pay forward, or it might be so such a small thing as just texting someone or visiting someone. Or with many of the survivors we worked with, Let's say we offered a greenhouse to get back into microenterprise or farming, then they would give or pay forward their round of you know tomatoes for the local orphanage, for example. So it was a way to trick the system into giving, not to stay in a victim space of entitlement or taking. Um, yeah, and the givers shine, and you know they say that we're wired as humans to um, you know for, for serotonin levels or dopamine hits go up when. We have food, sex, sleep, and giving. So, you know, log on and start giving or do something kind for someone. In fact, you'll find that that is one way to break through like the darkness.
0: Well, you spent two decades of your life giving back and helping others, you know, and preventing the thing that happened to you to happen to others and to remove the world of landmines. And, but then you started to feel really. So what constricted by your narrative and sort of your hero hero story, what was going on?
1: You realize that you, you can't be defined by a thing and that you're a whole person no matter how many limbs you're missing or what disease you have or what hard luck you've experienced. Um, so it came a point where I felt like I had taken on this landmine. I mean, I was loath to professionalize a personal experience. I mean, I was uncomfortable. Like I'm from New England. I hadn't talked, you know, for like 10 years, I never spoke about my landmine accident. Like most people didn't know I was an amputee. If you hadn't seen me in shorts or at the beach. Um, Wasn't that I was hiding it. It just was like, you know, it's unseemly, you know, to draw attention to your scar tissue. And then I knew that the calling wasn't really about me, it was about you know, that every 22 minutes someone was getting blown up and that I was born into some power and I had abilities and training and arms control and education and others to do something about this. So it was, um, yeah, I would say it's a calling of service, but I was helped in the giving. So the more I served in that category, my mood did lift and I was so excited that survivors found their voices. Um, that said, after about, you know, 10 years, it was time to, I was like, okay, I'm, the issue goes on, but I need to put my landmine cape away. Like even some board members or others and friends, you know, they'd be like, oh, Jerry, my, you know, my amputee friend or, you know, that landmine survivor. And I thought, well, that's not, why is that attaching to me? Um, I'm not that. I mean, I played that role and I was in that movie, but it's not who I am you know, it's not on who I am, but it was a piece of me, not my whole part. So that's when I realized, oh, it's actually unhealthy for me, not necessarily, I'm not saying for anyone else, but for me, it was time to move on. And then I needed a break. And yeah, I was also feeling burnt out. I was like, this, you know, the needs of the world are insatiable. And I needed time to reflect. And it turns out, get back to nature.
0: And, and your wife gave you some really invaluable perspective, I think, when you had a conversation with her.
1: Yeah, she was very much like, well, why don't we like leave Washington, the big city? Um, and why don't we go to your favorite place, the ocean? Um, and this time she goes, you know, sort of hang up that landmine cape, cape, don't take on anything big right away, but let's go heal and refresh. And we ended up moving to Malta. Um, we had a place there in the middle of the Mediterranean. And so just getting reconnected with sunshine the Mediterranean Sea, the ocean, the diving. Um, Yeah, that was starting like a lot of healing, um, which I just loved and loved and then started to think of other things I wanted to do. And I still was, you know, serving at some level, um, even working for a mind-free Holy Land to demine you know, most of Israel, but from a place of beauty and refreshment. Um, Later, I went to Cambridge University, started to study theology and went back to religious studies. And I was like, I was in heaven, like just pressing new boundaries, thinking new thoughts, and you know that you can't live focused on all the bad isms of the world. I mean, you, you can work on them. But if you make landmines or sexism or or, or religious hatred or um, racism, if you make isms the center of your life, it it almost builds that energy in conflict and 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 war and landmines and and maiming is not a way to celebrate human flourishing. So I needed to put flourishing back at the center, which is alignment with nature as well for me. And I think for others, like that's at the center of our service. And there's a lot of isms to fight and that's important, but they aren't at the center. Don't put them at the center. War is not at the center. Peace is at the center.
0: I wanted. to talk briefly about uh, your uh, incredible, successful efforts in 2010 to get the Israeli parliament to pass this unprecedented vote to clear old minefields, including at the baptism site of Jesus on the Jordan River. Did Going back to Israel and getting that vote, did that give you any sense of closure? Uh, And it just seems like such a, a remarkable moment.
1: That is a good question. I think that is a moment where I had release, where it was unfinished business. We had the landmine treaty, Um, more and more countries were signing on, and here was Israel and most countries in the Middle East um, not joining. But Jordan, because of our work with Queen Noor and the late King Hussein, had the courage to step out among its neighbors and join the mine ban treaty and began demining the Jordan River Valley, the baptismal site, as you mentioned. So that was an exciting liberation of land and like this fertile land um, in the Middle East. And you'd go back to Israel and I was trying to think, how can I, you know, we get Israelis to pay attention. Like they have a mythology. Again, it begins with a lie that, you know, landmines, we need landmines on our borders to protect us, to build security so that terrorists can't come and, you know, kill us. And landmines were not doing that, or you had no landmines, or Israel has no landmines on its border with Egypt or even around the Gaza Strip, they're just mostly, 80 to 90% of their mines are old leftover mines from 48, 56, 67, 73, all these wars, and no one had bothered to clean them up. And so in a country that values land, I mean, the name like Haaretz means the land, holy and sacred, and there's so little of it that we're fighting over, every inch should be clean if available. So we began that conversation of not just shaming Israel into doing it, but inviting this value of land and Mother Earth. Um, so uh, you know Israelis love nature hikes, outdoors, et cetera. So how do we start to clean up the military litter, do it to international standards? And by the way, Jordan's already done it, and you know the Norwegians paid for most of it, like making a little bit of competition in the area, like, oh, and so is Rwanda and El Salvador. So Israel didn't like, in a competitive spirit, didn't like to see itself as behind or afraid, um, even though they were afraid to put Israeli soldiers like in, in harm's way after war. right? They don't want to lose even one. No one does. So the provocation of a little bit of this ingredient and that led to um, a vote or a landmine bill put forth before the Knesset, and it had a unanimous vote, um, including you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, signing on. And it was because, not because of me, um, I think it was, again, a group a team effort that we met a boy who tragically in the middle of the campaign, 11 year old Danny Yuval. And Danny was going to see his grandma like one winter day on the Sabbath for lunch. And the family saw their first snow and just stopped you know, on the side of the road of a field that was covered in snow and made his first snowball and threw it at his sister and like ran in. everyone's laughing going in and then to go along. There's an explosion. Not far from where I think I was injured. And here's this 11 year old Jewish boy loses his leg in that minefield and his sisters temporarily blinded by the explosion. And there's the father covered in blood caught on Israeli film, and papers like carrying his bloody children out of a minefield because the fence had fallen down, the sign was not there. And as we learned, many minefields were unmarked and unfenced off, left over from, you know, decades of war. So this began, you know, the case. So by the time we passed this landmine bill and got a hundred, no one had had a hundred percent or unanimous vote on anything in Israel since, like, I think the 1950s, don't pick the wildflowers, like on the hillsides. It might've been related, like they didn't, wouldn't want people walking into minefields. But this was remarkable. And it was because of, um, Danny Yuval, like he was so on message and simple as an 11 year old saying again and again to his leaders, how can we make sure this doesn't happen to any other kid like me again and again? And so by the end, CP Livni who was in the Knesset and Netanyahu said, Jerry, you know, you're, I'm not of the tribe, but they said, Jerry, we could say no to you, but we couldn't say no to the boy. So his innocence and back to what I was saying you know, being right, and just asking an undeniable question, like, why do we have these minefields? Why can't we clean them up? And how can we make sure this doesn't happen to other innocent kids? That's pretty basic, and it worked.
0: We talked about your return to nature at Boundary Waters with the two friends who had carried you out of the minefields. And, uh, you know, your book is titled, I Will Not Be Broken, uh, your first book, and but last year your own emotional state was far from strong i guess there were a lot of things going on and the way you dealt with it was another return to nature can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so it's um you think about like life and so we had spent a lot of time or years raising our kids in washington like known as a power city and after leaving um working at this three years as a political appointee in the state department i started a company there was a technology like a predictive analytics company that I thought might be like one of the most important contributions I could make to the planet, meaning how to, with high accuracy, predict geopolitical events and how to head them off, like to game out better futures and to make it democratized that everyone could use game theory to optimize like wiser decision-making. So I was so excited about this, again, like vision, entrepreneurship, but I didn't, you know, didn't execute well. A lot of things went wrong. And then um, it went bankrupt. So I'm like, ouch, like I'm sort of not used to this level of failure, like big, you know, I mean, financial as well as like emotional and others. Um, So that was tough. And then, so my wife and I decided, well, let's get back to nature once again. So instead of Malta this time, we moved to St. Augustine, Florida, which is the oldest city in America, only about, you know, 8,000 people. On a coast, so going back to a small town on the water, not unlike the small town on the water that I grew up in, very charming, um, and just spend time in nature. I was like, "This, how wonderful! It's Mother Ocean." I'm back and walking the beach, and you know, I'm teaching at University of Virginia. I'm commuting. I'm writing, working on a book, and then the pandemic hit, um, and we were rather isolated. Back to like step number three, reach out. Like we were alone in the pandemic without a community or friends. And we brought my mother down from the Boston area because the assisted living facilities, as we all know, or many were beginning infected with COVID. So the pandemic was there and spreading. So we took her care, you know, to Florida. And I think the combination of, you know, I'm no match for Alzheimer's, I'm no match for a pandemic, a no match for the politics in Florida, like this is during also the 2020 elections where Florida, like people were like, you put out a sign and people would steal it down or threaten you and, you know, know, flags of no mercy and Trump 2020 were everywhere. So it was, you didn't know your neighbors. Um, And although it might be called a purple state, you you didn't know there, I had no relationships there and it felt people would be screaming at my mother with Alzheimer's if they saw a Biden, you know, bumper sticker. I was like, my mother doesn't understand what's going on. So I guess that's the end, like as you're walking the beach and crying more than is natural over your imp- impotence in the face of, you know, this triple threat. I said, ah, oh, you know, the sequel to my book, I Will Not Be Broken, really is like, I am broken. Like, you know, in a weird way, when you have no control over the universe and the whims or even like you're aging and you're looking death in the face every day with my mother's illness. Like, no, like, we all break. Um, so that was the, the coming full circle, like the, I think the humility to just say, you know, but for the grace of God, do any of us get to the next um, day? And yeah, even aging is a form of, I would call it trauma in slow motion, that we live with this, you know, this recession until death. Uh, so I don't want to it's not so poetic, really. It just means like, you know, shit happened and I didn't do very well and had to actually like get back to like, how do you just follow my own steps in the crawl back north? And now we're back in Washington and happily like writing and teaching at UVA. The next generation of what I would say are like rising social entrepreneurs, um, an and idealistic generation that is inheriting so many problems and they want to learn how to have impact, how to measure it and to make a difference in the world. So that's an exciting you know, sequel, I would say, to my brokenness.
0: Yes, you're teaching this really popular class at the University of Virginia on religion, violence, and strategy, how to stop killing in the name of God. And you have a new book out in November, Religious Side, Confronting the Roots of Anti-Religious Violence. What are the key themes in that book uh, uh, that you'd like to highlight? I think I think the book is already available for pre-order, right?
1: Yes. I mean, I write it with my co-author, Georgette Bennett, who's the daughter of Holocaust survivors and came from Europe as an immigrant when she was a child. Um, So we started to look at these patterns of religion-related violence with my students and researchers, including Professor Peter Oakes um, in the Religious Studies Department. And the dean gave us some you know freedom to pull together teams and take a look at like what you know, this is the fastest spreading type of violence in the world it's not interstate just such as we're seeing with russia and ukraine right now it's um actually religion related and i don't call it religious violence because it turns out when you analyze it look that the causes of the violence are not religious for the most part in the majority of circumstances but conflicts can become religified and therefore harder to solve when the sacred and God or divine are involved. But in fact, a lot of people have this conventional wisdom, like, oh, religion, like the biggest cause of violence throughout history. It's just simply not true. So we looked at the cases of genocide on our watch. So if you look at the Uyghurs in China, even the Tibetans in Tibet and China, um, the Yazidis suffering from ISIS um, in Iraq, they've undergone over 70 genocides. You know, this proto-monotheistic, you know, proto-Abrahamic religion that is not a people of the book, but so beautiful and all about blessing. They're, you know, they barely survived. Maybe there's 800,000 left. Um, so we look at the Yazidis and we also look at, you know, my religious minorities around the world, but we also looked at indigenous experience, including in the Americas. And what does it look like to have potentially a religious side in slow motion? You know, the assault on Native Americans in our backyard here um, over centuries, where like white colonial settler um, ways killed a lot of millions of people. And with the hallmarks anyway, I'll just summarize for the book is like when you see religious like the killing of religion and its people and heritage, you see genocide, the killing of the people in the communities and, and again, femicide, like killing of women and, and their rights as well, enslavement of women. You also then see ecocide, like the destruction of the environment and nature, or wells and water so that people cannot return to their sacred space, their homeland or inhabit where they used to live. Um, And lastly, factocide. You know, you know, we're seeing so much the assault on truth where narratives are filled with misinformation, disinformation, and lies. For example, you know the Yazidis are devil worshipers. It's just an outright lie, but if that's what causes Sunni, Shia, or Kurdish people in Iraq to say we can scapegoat Yazidis, everyone agrees they're not worth it based on misinformation of culture and ignorance of religion, that's problematic. So yeah, religious side has all those hallmarks. And we look at like, what would it look like to stop it, interrupt violence, um, and take on the toughest cases of our day. Um, You know, this is, you know, beyond the Holocaust and Shoah. we say never again, when it comes to mass murder of whole peoples. And it seems to be ever again, they were seeing mass murder of peoples and their cultural heritage.
0: You see Russian President Vladimir Putin now invading Ukraine and uh, uh, claiming that he is getting rid of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And you're also, you know, you've talked about military litter and you can see the car, you know, carnage, both the human carnage, but also the mountain of military litter, the tanks, the trucks, the planes, the helicopters all broken on the on the on the wayside along with the bodies of russian and ukrainian soldiers Uh, how does a society a culture a country its people recover from something like that
1: Hmm. yeah you don't want to sound i mean it's the middle of this horrific onslaught um, where you're seeing again like cluster munitions being dropped that will include like military litter that blow up children and cause maiming and amputations for years to come so when you're inflicting collective trauma, again, based on facto side like misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies, um, you need to correct that as soon as possible, what is actually happening like real time. So when journalism and intelligence work in the right direction, as we see, that can be helpful. Um, but then the information sources are cut off, and it's very important that Russians and Ukrainians and the whole world see as much possible, you know, what is happening, what the truth is on this onslaught by, by Putin um yeah and and it takes like you i'd say every conflict takes strategies that include top-down strategies government to government united nations you know doing their thing and we're seeing with nato and the west allying in most of the world you know um, condemning as they should this um unnecessary war and, and invasion and then there's the middle out which like ngos and human rights watch and you know people like from the international campaign they they decry what's actually happening and they're reporting and so organizations and civil society have a very strong role to play around the world in russia it's not very easy to be a, a voice of dissent or civil society but um around the world we're seeing people lobbying together and joining forces to support the moment in ukraine and then bottom up where most of the suffering takes place you know, individual families, um, individuals who are Ukrainians who are suffering terribly. And again, the vast majority, 80 to 90% of the the, um, the victims will be civilians, not soldiers, even if they're picking up arms in their defense. Um, this is hard. The, the human catastrophe is playing before our very eyes. So it's a destruction of like land and nature and all based on lies. And to go after, you know, you know, millions of people at risk. So, this is, in a sense, it's not done in the name of religion. Um, it's, you know, old fashioned interstate war based on other lies. But this is, you know, as much a tragedy as like we've seen in our lifetime as well. But meanwhile, I would just add that while Ukraine is in the headlines, these other religious sides of BIPOC, you <laughs> Black and Indigenous and people of color around the world continue on in the scale of millions of people you know, going missing, being enslaved, imprisoned and killed, and their heritage wiped out. So I would just continue to say all we can ask is to not suffer compassion fatigue, but to to allow our hearts to be broken out as we pray and take action to support all of humanity and all families who are suffering in the world today.
0: I wanna close this conversation by asking you a couple of questions. One about God, the other about nature. Despite what happened to you, I know you went to Israel to study Hebrew, to study Judaism, but despite what happened, did you ever feel when it happened that you no longer connected with God or have you ever been tempted to walk away from God?
1: I I think I would answer that like over time, as I've learned in my body that I'm differently abled you know, one day I have both legs, the next day I have one leg. Um, So over time, our bodies change, we're differently abled. I also would say we're differently faced, F-A-I-T-H, over time. That, you know, what I believed at age five, you know, versus age 20 in that minefield versus now has evolved and been seasoned by experience and uh, testing. So when I was in that minefield, I I somehow knew God was with me. I had like a strange message. I call it like a grace capsule, like in the middle of all the blood and the violence and the pain, something stopped. And I felt I heard a message like you don't die this way. There's a purpose for the Middle East resume blood in action, like, I don't know, could have, like, maybe that was a survival skill that gave me hope, but I somehow knew in the middle of that godforsaken minefield, when there would look like there was no hope we get out alive, that that wasn't the end. Um, and then over time, I have had, you know, I have fought with God, I have, you know, questioned, I've explored many religions and traveled around the world to meet what I would call people of light, and dignity everywhere from all faiths. So I learned so much from each tradition. I joke that I'm maybe polyamorous when it comes to spirituality and religion because I'm enriched by so many traditions that I've learned because I've had the privilege of like breaking bread with so many different type of people. Um, When I was saddest and like losing, and, you know, from the bankruptcy to like moving out of DC to um, to sort of going on like a, you know, not a streak of winning, but a streak of like breaking, I yelled out a fair amount, like, where the hell are you with all like, if there are so many angels or light beings, look what's happening around the world. Not just, not just about me, but like, this sucks. This is, um, I'm not impressed with the powers of good right now, systemically, you know, with what has been happening and like racism and conflict and sexism and anti-immigrant, like so many things that seem so hateful. And so there are times where you're tempted to despair. And then I say face facts, like I'm despairing today and then choose life once again, a new day. And so I think choosing life is a code, choosing hope, choosing that my life is bigger than myself that spirit and the universe, that an ultimate being or reality encompasses all. So I, you know, we find in their studies on resilience that faith allows and spirituality are a competitive advantage when it comes to survivorship because of your moral compass and your faith and your some optimism. And also that it's social, that in groups we survive, not alone. So, The role of religion and spirituality or however, whether it be, you know, AA meetings or um, clubs or interfaith clubs, like these are so important that we connect to one another with trust and faith and hope, and that we are in service to our communities and to humanity. Those are the callings that I think are divine. And so in that, I see God and the divine infused everywhere. I see you know, that I grew up with the portal of coming to faith through Jesus and through my upbringing as a Christian. With education and travel and history and learning, I realized that I was more proud of Rabbi Jesus as a teacher um, and an inspired uh, an inspiration than I was by Christianity per se, if you know what I mean. But I don't throw babies out with bathwater with that. I become differently faced. Over time, And I'm comfortable in all sorts of Abrahamic tents, and non-Abrahamic tents, um, and really the greatest tent of all I, is my return to nature. And maybe that's more indigenous practice, but you know, going back into the water and into the woods and into the earth is where I say like, oh, it's all written here.
0: And when you were broken last year, or you felt broken, you weren't broken, but you felt broken, you did a vision quest in order to, again, you know, get sustenance from Earth, from nature, what was that like and what can others learn from your experience and reconnect with nature?
1: I'd say I'm no model, but I just, yeah, I returned to nature by, you know, maybe in my 40s and in in my 50s primarily would say like, first I returned by learning to breathe again. I realized that it's unhealthy if you're just so busy and running around that you've forgotten how to breathe. And someone asked me one day, like, did I know how to meditate? Did I have a spiritual discipline? And I like, well, I have faith and I'm spiritual. I said, defensively. Um, and they said, no, can you breathe? Like why well, you've done a lot of things, like what well, can you slow down? Can you sit still? And this friend said, you remind me of a donkey with a carrot, you know, attached in front of it. And you keep chasing that carrot. Like what's the carrot? Like, why can't you just stay and find today sufficient? And so they taught me about meditation. The first it was like, just learn to breathe 60 seconds a day, sit still without coffee or cell phone, breathe then you know for a month and then do two minutes a day for the second month, three minutes a day for the third month. By the end of a year, she said so simply, you would have what I call a spiritual discipline. That's 12 minutes a day sitting in stillness with our breath, which is fundamental to our life. I thought if I can't do that. And so I tried and I realized I was ill, like spiritually clogged and ill, almost like I was spiritually obese. Like I couldn't do a push up or a sit up at the spiritual gym of breathing. And that alarmed me. So that was part of my trek back. It was like, wow, this is worse than I thought. So I started to spend more time in nature, started to learn techniques of breathing and meditation. I'm not dogmatic about anything. I'm just like, breathing is good (laughs) and nature is great. So the return to nature, return to the ocean, and then the vision quests was something that I realized I also did not know the indigenous or native stories as well as I should. and, And nature had been my enemy for too long. So a shaman, indigenous, Jewish farmer, deaf friends in wisconsin said jerry why don't you try a vision quest i was like heck what's that so i wouldn't say it was a full-out one because it was during the pandemic and you you know i didn't have access but i just went into the woods for five days on the side of a mountain and sat and talked to the ants and the birds and the bees and the dead trees and the live trees and the um, the sunshine and the, the mulch and you know just the quest is just to ask why am I here? What message or mission shall I serve? And how best can I be of service to that calling? So it isn't about like a yoga mat necessarily, or like sort of like all about me, like you know, what's next for me? It's um, how can I be interdependent and work alongside nature in the calling that where my little speck fits in? And so that was humbling. I just, you know, and it started, it took a while just to like, just detox and get into the rhythm of mother earth. And it takes different people, different amounts of time, but it took me about five days to just start to listen to what I think nature was telling me.
0: Sherry, looking back at that young man who was enjoying a a simple hike when he stepped on a landmine and felt that the earth had risen up to attack him and who for two decades lost touch with nature, the activist, teacher, author, father, husband, the Nobel laureate uh, that he would go on to become, what would you say to that young man and the journey that he has been on?
1: Never stop believing you're more than your body. Nature is your mother, your ally, your friend, your essential. Stay close.
0: Jerry, thank you so much for being my guest on When It Mattered and for this amazing conversation. I'm very much uh, looking forward to reading your new book and to having you back on when when your book is out.
1: Thank you, Chitra, it's my pleasure.
0: Jerry White is an award-winning teacher, activist, and leader. His high impact campaigns in the wake of his landmine injury, which cost him his right leg, resulted in three major treaties. The Landmine Ban Treaty, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the Cluster Munitions Ban. He shares the 1997 Nobel Peace Prize with the international campaign to ban landmines. White served as US Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in charge of looking at data-driven outcomes and conflict negotiations. A senior Ashoka Fellow, White is a professor of practice in religion and political science at the University of Virginia. He teaches a popular course, Religion, Violence, and Strategy, How to Stop Killing in the Name of God. White is the author of a 2004 book on resilience called I Will Not Be Broken. And his upcoming book is called Religiouside: Confronting the Roots of Anti-Religious Violence. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and will be released in November. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Corr, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.